Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee, and you, you are very welcome at this week's Sitrep Roundtable on a sunny Thursday afternoon in London town. In the next 60 minutes, the government's U-turn on the Gurkhas. Dozens more killed and wounded in Baghdad bombings, but does the great British public care anymore? Now their troops have all but pulled out of that country. Why has President Obama fallen into the torture chamber of US politics? Did MI5 cock up or simply fail to cope over the July 2005 London bombings? Why do governments slag off the Israelis over their failure of any movement in the Middle East peace process? And why does the image thing still elude the coalition in Afghanistan? And does President Obama qualify for a Pope mobile? Well, today, Jackie Smith, she the Home Secretary, announced that virtually all families of the Gurkhas could stay in Britain. Yet another lost battle of government policy or decision. On the line, the chief political correspondent of The Observer, Ned Temko. Uh, Ned, the details are roughly this, aren't they? That if a, a Gurkha served for four years prior to 1997... Mm-hmm. That's it. They're in. Is and that about a, it? A spectacular U-turn, even by recent government uh, standards, I would have said. Why have they done it? Why, why this U-turn? Or is that they obvious? Did, they did it because they had to. And um, th- they did it for two reasons, one of which, uh, both of which are serious, but one of which is really serious. The first is they lost the vote for the first time Gordon Brown became, since Gordon became prime minister, uh, due to the defection of large numbers of their own MPs. Um, who were in support of a fair deal for the Gurkhas. The much more important problem is that uh, it kind of exhibited a, an almost unbelievable tone deafness to public sentiment. Um, and it was, in a way, a kind of metaphor for what's gone so often for this government. And that is they get bogged down, in particular the prime minister, in detail, which rationally sometimes makes sense. I mean, Gordon Brown's argument was more or less, uh, we can't afford it, we'll be swamped, we have to do this carefully. It was kind of a number 11 Downing Street Treasury response to a problem. But as Joanna Lumley (laughs) made very, very clear, for most people, this was just about uh, a group of people who had served valiantly uh, for for the British Army in a tradition of hundreds of years. Uh, not getting a fair deal. Tell me, uh, Ned, if it hadn't have been for the actress Joanna Lumley... <laughs> Go on, you finish the sentence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it would have happened anyway, but she, she certainly was very important. I mean, she... And there was this dramatic turning point when uh, she happened to encounter by mistake uh, Phil Woolis, the, the government minister uh, who had the unhappy task of charting this U-turn outside the BBC studios, and she basically, it was a wonderful piece of television, she basically uh, seemed almost the puppeteer, uh, forcing him in a very nice way to say, this is what you guys have to do. But I think by that point, it was already clear uh, that this was, it was a little bit like the 10p tax rate, uh, which, which first uh, rocked this government. Um, they they lost the big picture basically, and you can't do that in politics. You know, as a as a political writer, you can uh, do a big story on a very very big issue, and there may be some doubt about whether the public even bothered to uh, take great note of the detail. Mm-hmm. Something like this 
uh, is really going to capture the imagination of the public. So again, the question comes really, how is it that, uh, I suppose, a government without Alistair Campbell uh, can actually sort of ignore the possibilities? Well, it's, it's puzzling, and it's not only government without Alistair Campbell, because uh, after all, he's, uh, Gordon has fairly savvy media people around him, not least Lord Mandelson. Um, I think the great irony of this is people used to accuse Tony Blair of being shallow because he seemed to get only the big picture, and he had an instinct for what ordinary people felt was right or wrong. Um, I, I, I think the real damage of this issue in particular is, is it crystallizes the problem Gordon Brown has had from the start in number 10, and that is he is a great detail man. He was a competent chancellor, but in the top job, you have to have this kind of instinct for what people are going to feel, and it's not really a matter of media advisors. It's a matter of, of kind of you know, political gut feeling. Uh, but I, I agree with you. What's most puzzling is he's got a lot of smart people around him, and you would have thought someone would have said, whoa, this won't play. Ned Temke, The Observer, thank you very much indeed. Well, with me at the slip round table, a splendid quartet, but not one from his cocoa, I noticed. The director of the RUSI, Professor Michael Clark, the head of the Middle East program at the London Think Tank, Chatham House, Dr. Claire Spencer the sometime foreign policy advisor in the Kremlin, Alexander Nekrasov, and the director of the Defence and Security Department at the University of Salford. I really do think... Centre. Centre for International Security and War Studies. Trips off the tongue. It's Professor Eric Grove, tripping off the tongue. That title gets longer every time he turns up. Um, Michael Clark, it's a great day for the Gurkhas. It's a great day for Joanna Lumley. And there is something else here, though, isn't it? It is the one good story... Uh, a political story, U-turns are quite often, people say, just turn around and say, well, so what? But this yeah. is a good one. Yeah, this is a, this is a feel-good story for everybody, apart from the Prime Minister, really. Uh, I mean, in a sense, Ned is absolutely right. The political antenna were just not working. The idea that, that you take on the Gurkhas and Joanna Lumley together is political suicide. Um, these are two great national institutions, and the public cares about the Gurkhas and is very affectionate about somebody like Joanna Lumley. But there's something else here as well. It, it isn't just the political antenna. The fact is there was an issue of principle, and the principle was that people who had fought for Britain should have a right to live here. The, the, the government got their figures wrong. They overestimated the, the numbers. They said 100,000 were going exactly, to come. Exactly, and, and we're talking about, who, who knows... 10,000, 20, yes. perhaps. But there were the, I think the public had a natural sense that there's a, the, the, the principle was right, that if you fight for Britain, you should be able to live here afterwards with your immediate family. And the government got that wrong as well. I think, as Ned said, there was the, the, the theory, theory was, how many are we talking about, how much will it cost? But the principle was more important. So in that sense, as it were, the right sort of politics has won out in this case. Yeah. I'd uh, like to develop Ned's point a bit more, actually, because I think it helps us in our understanding of Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown, I think, has been sitting on his instincts and his principles for a very, very long time to get elected. The whole new Labour enterprise was the triumph well, Gordon of Gordon Brown's only ever been elected as an MP. He hasn't been elected mm. as anything else. No, I know, but, 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 but to get the government elected. You know, oh, right. to, and, and, and so to get power, power's the crucial thing. And he, he, he knew that to get power, he had to overcome his own natural political instincts, in my opinion. The head has ruled the heart for so long that Brown can only see things now in these kind of very detailed policy terms, and therefore, and he makes these awful mistakes. Uh, Claire, Claire Spencer, you sitting in in think tankery, um, anybody at Chatham House 
whether it was their area or not, could have said to number 10, don't get into a fight over this one, you'll lose. Absolutely, and I think it shows, particularly in, in the current mood of, shall we say, parliamentary meltdown as well over the expenses scandal, how a single focused campaigning person, I mean, Joanna Lumley is who she is in the public eye, but she's also uh, led a very focused campaign. She's had some very clear messages and she's been very articulate and very dogged about following them through. And I think... At a time where we're seeing people like Esther Ranson, more celebrities coming on the scene to say, we want to get involved in politics too because we're, we're tired of these people who s seem to spend half their time submitting uh, dodgy expense claims. And actually a bit of uh, focus... What do you mean in Parliament? In Parliament, yes. I mean, I think it's... They it's don't a, do it it's anywhere affecting, else, do they? But I think it's more than, you know, just the issue and just her. I think it's, it, it says something about the frustration everybody has with, with the political system and the individuals in it who seem to be self-interested. And this, I don't think, was certainly seen as a self-interested campaign because she had personal reason for doing it. Now, Alexander Nekrasov, um, you will agree that it's been a successful campaign, but you have a, quite a view over the delightful, the delectable, the wonderful, the absolutely fabulous Joanna Lumley. Um, go on, put the markers on it. Well, first of all, I'd like to say I didn't agree with a single word Ned Temko said. And let me tell you why. Because I was a spin doctor myself in the Kremlin, and hopefully will become one again if the Conservatives have any brains left and help them win the election. But the point is... Well, hang on, which Conservatives? Here in Britain. <laughs> I'm, I'm meeting them tonight. But the point is that, uh, first of all, this is a perfect, perfect Mendelssohn thing to do to distract the attention of the nation to a rather small issue of the Gurkhas. I'm sorry, but it's not huge. Let me give you a figure. 2.25 million old people in Britain live in energy poverty, right? Mm. Now, that's a big issue. Now, I would love to see some actress and even Joanna Lemley fight for those people, but that's not cool, you see? That's not a, an issue to fight for. So she goes for well, that sort of high-profile, smaller issue. Gurkha family. Gurkha. No, I'm just saying yes. how the spin doctors work yes. here. So what you do is this. You tell Mr. Prime Minister, we're going to do this sort of double whammy with this issue. We're going to distract the attention from a horrible, horrible fact that none of the servicemen who've been maimed in Iraq and Afghanistan are being looked after. They're barely surviving. Nobody pays them anything and so on. We are, all other issues, the banking crisis and so on. Let's do the small bits. And also coming uh, sort of uh, so this is this is how it works with the spin doctor world and w when you all say that um, Gordon Brown has been the loser no he's been the winner because you must understand those small issues like for example the parliamentary expenses they overshadow the huge issue that the country is bankrupt that's the issue mm. that should be on the front pages every day. Where's the money, Prime Minister? What a Where's beautifully the money? Russian analysis. <laughs> Where's the money, Prime Minister? It was, it Where's the, the money, Prime Minister? That the, the overspending, whatever they call it, is uh, the, the public debt's four times over what was estimated. That was slipped into Tony the Howard Today programme. Tony Howard wrote in Today's Guardian a very interesting little letter that they put at the end saying, uh, saying uh, uh, who and why and, and why now? We did this mm. stuff come out, which is but, a, uh, a very interesting but, question. But on actually. the question of Joanna Lumley, mm. the point is, I do not. I, I think she did a good job, <laughs> yeah. but oh, she, yeah. because she's yeah. not a good actress, <laughs> that sort of makes me think there's something more to it. But on the whole, okay, it's not a bad story. 
Okay. But that's, Alexander, that's if, if it was a conspiracy theory, the government would have arranged it better. That's the mm, point. They wouldn't yeah. have been. They wouldn't have been quite. Oh, they're so, doing quite well. They wouldn't wait, have been quite so wait, embarrassed. We're going to move it. on, but <laughs> let me just have let me just have one one line on this. The government would have arranged it better. Mike Clark, you know as well as I do, we now live in the <laughs> in the decade of incompetence. End of story. Uh, let's go to the, the Baghdad story, which is sadder and sadder. We start. Again, I suppose, every week with another bombing in Baghdad. At least around about 40 people killed and 70, 80 people injured mm. by a car bomb in the northwest of Baghdad. Um, Claire Schuler, Schuler, uh, mm. poor, crowded, mainly Shia neighbourhood. Does that tell us anything? It could be. I, I read somewhere that this wasn't as professional, shall we say, as some previous attacks. But, I mean, the... This is immaterial if indeed it's yet another attempt to build sectarian strife. Um, there's no clear answer there, it seems to me, as to why now, except just to keep the keep the pressure up. I mean, at the same time, overnight, there was a, a, a suicide bomber killing seven members of one of these anti-Al-Qaeda militias um, in Kirkuk. So the pressure's on on several fronts. This is the, the, the Sunnis who are fighting al-Qaeda in the Kirkuk, Mosul area. So whether it's tit for tats, whether, you know, old simmering uh, sectarian strife really won't go away, I think this is a sign that it won't. Do, I mean, do, do the Iraqis go along with this idea that certainly the Iraqi government and the United States uh, is saying that, OK, they're terrible things, but they actually don't affect the overall security of Iraq. Well, of course, this is against a background where the death toll, which was around a thousand a month at its height, is no longer at that level. But it does suggest there are still some scores to be reckoned with. And certainly people are positioning themselves and will, I think, continue to position themselves until the Americans finally leave as to who's actually representing the Iraqi nation and indeed whether one can be built. I mean, Norian Maliki does not and is not seen as someone who represents the entire nation. He is seen as heading up a particular uh, coalition of Shia interests, and the Sunnis are well aware of this, as are Muqtada al-Sad and other Shia interests. And when the uh, Americans, if they stick to the schedule, is it next month they withdraw from the cities? Supposedly from the cities, and of course, you know, eventual withdrawal completely in 2011... Um, I think they'll stick to the timetable, but whether, in fact, they they can stay out of the cities is a a moot point. Mike Clark, the um, cynicism, a bit of cynicism, I suppose, is now that the British troops have all but withdrawn, uh, and also we've got to the sort of position where um, the cameras have gone with them. Most people in this country couldn't care toss about the body bags in Baghdad. No, it's somebody else's problem now. Uh, and, I mean, our campaign is, is effectively over from a military point of view. That means that the public sort of relaxes. Um, and this, I think there is also a degree of cynicism in the sense that if this goes wrong, it will still be America's fault. That is that the Americans uh, seem to, to succeed with the surge, short-term effort. They didn't really create a viable political solution. If, as Claire suggests, that, that this, this thing, things may slip away next year, who knows, it's, it's entirely likely, um, there's a sense in Britain that, which says, well, it won't be our fault, it'll be the Americans' fault, because our stake in it now has, has disappeared. We're not, we don't have troops in Basra. There's no way. There's, there's a bit of naval activity in. going on. 
yes. naval activity. Yeah, going oh, and helping some training, yes, yeah. Yes, yes. But, but all of that's low visibility, and we don't mm. expect any casualties from <clears throat> the troops that are deployed there. So a little bit of training, um, some naval presence, and a lot of naval training as well. But, I mean, Ankazar has been handed, handed over as a working port. The airport is working. The British can say, we've done the best we could, and now it's finished. I mean, the, the aftermath, of course, is it doesn't look like a victory. It doesn't feel like one. Yeah. And history will still judge whether the Brits did a good job within the limits they were, they were, that were imposed on them or whether actually we lost Basra. Um, no chance of the British ever going back in there. Well, not under present circumstances. I mean, the, 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 the idea always with these operations is you declare victory and leave and history judges how much of a settlement you leave behind. So the idea is whatever happens next has to be seen fairly as the responsibility of the Iraqis themselves, for good or bad. So if there were a, a, a terrible bloodbath there in a year's time, would people say, well, that's the Iraqis' problem, we did the best we could, or will they say it's because we didn't do our job properly that there is now a bloodbath in Iraq? That's always the, 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 the calculation that's being made at the end of these operations, and it'll be made in Baghdad as well when the Americans go in 2011. OK. Um, and next week got your diaries out next week we will be back in the studio and we'll be looking at the simple question how does the rest of the world see the british british forces as well uh, now that we're out of I iraq that's next week uh, here on sitrep but we'll tell more about that in the program later on now i want to go to the united states because in the united states there's a big debate going on the subject is what the headline writers call the torture of pow's one poll uh, the poll on the controversy over the use of torture in the interrogation of suspected terrorists brings very mixed tidings for critics by a 51% to 42% margin. Americans want an investigation into the use of torture, a crusade-level issue for much of the left. But, now get this figure, um, by a 55% to a 36% margin, Americans say that torture is justified in defence of national security. On the line from the University of Southern Utah, the political scientist, Professor Michael Stathis. Um, Michael, does this tell us that the spectre of Guantanamo, for example, simply won't go away? And America thinks all Guantanamo prisoners must be guilty of something. The President of the United States just barely finished giving a uh, speech uh, regarding this, so it's front-page news. And... Uh, Probably before our program is uh, is over in London today, uh, Dick Cheney is going to give uh, a speech of his own. The former uh, vice president. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, sorry. It's, one is playing off the other. Uh, the polls, I think both of them are fairly accurate, if you can believe that. Um, one, uh, of course, uh, indicates that there really is a very deep revulsion uh, among the American people to uh, evidence uh, of, of of torture, that war crimes uh, probably were uh, uh, c committed, and they want facts and details about this and want to know who's responsible. Uh, but sadly, and this, this almost seems uh, completely contradictory, that there are also a good number of people, uh, hard to estimate just uh, what kind of numbers, that really are sympathetic to Dick Cheney's argument that uh, torture might have provided needed information to save American uh, American lives. Now, uh, for me, the latter notion is, is doubtful at best, and it misses the vital point. Torture is a crime by international law, and far more importantly here, American law. And important people knew this uh, as they were authorizing uh, some of these actions. Um, there is no acceptable justification for torture, and I think the majority of American people hold that view. 
I picked up some other figures from the State Department uh, last night, and that was that out of the 540-odd people that have been uh, let out of Guantanamo, 14% of them have gone on to commit terrorist acts. Now, you can, you can juggle the figures around and you might even say, well, 14% of people that leave any form of prison go back to the, the reason they were in there in the first place. But that gives some sort of credence to the former Vice President Dick Cheney's argument, doesn't it? Well, it does on the one hand. There's a certain logic to it that and he's arguing that these people are too dangerous to let go. And, of course, this has been the focus of debate on the floor of the Senate and the House uh, the last couple of days, and uh, it's uh, a focus of, uh, of debate today. But, um, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the point that uh, works against people like Cheney, uh, they're the ones that let them, let them go. Uh, and uh, how do you make the argument these people are too dangerous to let loose on the one hand, and yet you are the people who actually turn them loose on the world? See, in, in his election run, uh, the pres uh, now President Obama said, you know, I'm going to shut down Guantanamo. Now, as far as I can see, the argument uh, on the Hill is that uh, it, where are you going to put them if you shut down? Uh, where are you going to put the prisoners? You're not going to put any in my state. Uh, and so that's really become the, the basis of the argument, isn't it? It is a, a major part of the argument, and uh, as, as far as I could determine from uh, just listening to bits and pieces of the President's presentation this morning, uh, he addressed this uh, and uh, in part noted that uh, uh, there already are uh, numerous uh, people who have been convicted um, of uh, uh, various activities and are already imprisoned uh, in facilities uh, across the United States. And uh, adding a few numbers to that probably is not going to change the equation that much, but uh, this is a very sensitive question. Even Democrats um, are holding back money uh, for the closing of Guantanamo until they along with many Republicans, are convinced the president really has a good plan on where to put these people. Okay. Uh, Michael Stasis, thank you very much again. Um, Michael Clark, it's fascinating, isn't it, that Vice President uh, Dick Cheney is on the town. Um, I mean, the former president, George Bush, nowhere he is, selling his house in Crawford, isn't he? But the Vice President Dick Cheney and his daughter Liz, they're saying fundamentally, listen, uh, this president we've got now is lily-livered. Mm. If, if he doesn't get, stay tough, next time there is a bombing, yeah. his fault. Yeah, and the interesting thing was that when he was vice president, Dick Cheney said very, very little. I mean, you couldn't get a word out of him. He was the deus ex machina behind the, behind the president. Now he, you can't shut him up. Um, and that's because, presumably, he's campaigning for his place in history. I think he must be, like a lot of Bush officials, they're very worried about how history will judge them. And I think they feel as if, if, they, if they have the siren voices of, of alarm that they may turn out to be, to be proved to be right. There's some even Eric. more exciting stuff coming out about Cheney, actually. Um, Seymour Hirsch has been saying some very interesting things yeah. about him being tied up, that he had his own murder squad, commanded by the guy who's currently commanding Afghanistan, actually, and that um, he had Benazir done in and so on it's a very fascinating story we have to emphasize this is, this is Seymour just, Hirsch this is Seymour Hirsch yeah, yeah. I'm not saying when, it's when, when Seymour Hirsch is right it. he is spectacularly right but yes. when he's wrong he's he can be spectacularly wrong but it's interesting but I was putting Sounds it forward like a actually I, number, doesn't it? <laughs> I, but I was only putting it forward saying that he is under mm. a lot of pressure at the moment so I can see why he's making speeches <laughs> Claire 
what fascinates most people is that, or should anyway, is that this whole thing is supposed to be over. Um, and it was pretty straightforward. Shut down Guantanamo, say we don't do torture anymore, um, we're not interested in Iraq, you know, no television cameras, etc. Et it story runs and runs, isn't it? Well, because by doing this, there is an admission that someone is guilty somewhere. So you have these lawyers who authorised, you know, fairly senior legal experts who authorised it. You've got the politicians like Cheney who are obviously trying to defend themselves by going on the attack. And so there's some very nasty business still in the dungeons that needs clearing out. And I'm afraid you can't just close it down and forget it ever happened. Mike, when people talk about the torture, the waterboarding, you know, there's a great argument about that. I would say read um, Eric Lomax. You know that famous book, yeah, The Railway yes, Man? Yes, yes, Eric yes. Lomax, who was a prisoner of the Japanese. He was a signaller. And he was badly mistreated by the Japanese because every time there was a problem, they, they thought it was the signalers who were doing it because they yeah. were building radios and communicating. He was beaten up. He had his legs broken. He had people jump on him. He had lots of things done to him over three or four years. And he said in that book more than ten years ago, the worst thing they ever did to him was waterboarding. Mm. He said the worst torture he ever suffered was simulated drowning of all the things they did. And I've always remembered that. When they talk about waterboarding now, read Eric Lomax, yeah. see what he said over a decade ago about it. OK, listen, I want to um, sort of switch... Um, to MI5. Um, this week, uh, the Commons Intelligence and Security Committee has published a second report on what rent went wrong with intelligence during, I suppose, um, 2004 that led up to the July 2005 bombings in London. Uh, on the line, the uh, security correspondent of the BBC, Rob Watson, um, Rob, it is, a, it is a sad tale, isn't it, which doesn't seem to have got much better. Well, it's sad in the sense, of course, that it's very it's heartbreaking to see what, what was missed. But, but I think the, in my interpretation of this report, Christopher, is that it's about as close as you can get to a total exoneration of MI5, of the security service, because essentially what the report says, and its conclusion is very much the same as its first report uh, a couple of years ago, is, is that, look, based on the information they had at the time about two of the 7-7 the seven, seven attackers, and based crucially on the kind of resources they had available, and also the other threats that really were very, very apparent at the time, they probably couldn't have done anything any different. Yeah. They said they had the res didn't have the resources to watch 52 suspects who was they were classed as essential targets and only reasonable surveillance coverage of about 1 in 20 terror suspects. That is terrible. It was quite staggering, and of course the, uh, the, the 277 attackers, eventual 77 attackers, weren't even essential targets. They were desirable. That's, that's just the issue of the, the level of the threat and the level of resources. And at one point the, the committee said, look, in order to have followed up all the leads that they had as a result of a couple of earlier investigations, they would have needed several hundred thousand MI5 agents, whereas in fact there are currently three and a half thousand and that clearly is just neither achievable, they said, nor, nor indeed desirable. It wouldn't be what British society is all about. But, but I must say, Christopher, that this really was a quite unprecedented peep into how MI5 works, the kind of setup and how it deals with the threat posed by uh, violent Islamic extremists. And it was quite staggering, really, particularly this, this issue of resources and the insight it gave into, into what they can and can't do. And this idea that if there were multiple plots, even at this very time, it would be very, very difficult for our intelligence services to deal with.
Yeah, and it's not a, a, one of those things that, I mean, you were saying they've got more people now, and they've certainly got more money, um, and all three services, uh, GCHQ, uh, 6 and 5, have got more money. It doesn't mean that they're up to, up to speed to prevent an equal number of uh, potential attacks. Absolutely, and one of the things that the committee report concluded by saying was, look, we're going to have to face it, that unless we wanted to live in this kind of a secret society with several thousand agents, 100,000 agents, we surely will have more attacks. And there was one line which uh, referred to how the, the, the head of MI5 had said not so long ago that he thought there were probably about 2,000 violent extremists out there who pose a direct threat to Britain. The committee said, well... That's probably almost certainly an, uh, an underestimate, and there must be lots of other people that MI5 doesn't know about, don't know about, and who presumably will eventually get through under the radar. Rob Watson, thank you very much indeed. Mike Clark, uh, we, we, we tend to think, well, shadowy organisations, but, you know, anybody's watching spooks knows mm. they get through in the end. Uh, it's, 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 it's a bit scary. Yeah, it is. I mean, Jonathan Evans, the head of MI5, he, he said, he says, spooks is rubbish. He said it's not like that at all. But one of the good things about Spooks is that for the first time it puts MI5 as the good guys. We've had a generation where Secret Service were regarded as actually the bad guys. Uh, they were double-crossing their agents, letting them hang out to dry and so on. For the, the good thing about Spooks is that it actually creates the image that we are on the side of the public. But there's no doubt about it. They're, they're, over, they're overstressed. Three, three and a half thousand of them even now and, and what, uh, what Rob said is absolutely right remember that the crevice operation which was this big operation you know to this was bombing Blue Water and the um, uh, Ministry of Sound nightclub that threw up 55-ish 52, 53 names they found 15 that they really wanted to track 37, 38 which they would have liked to have tracked but couldn't and Mohammed Sadiq Khan and Shezatan we were, were, on the, were one of those two of those people and almost before they'd got into that operation, Operation Rhyme started, which is Deerham Barrett, the guy who was trying to create the gas limo project, you know, to blow up mm. a big limo with gas canisters. Uh, and uh, he had a 39-page manual of bomb-making with him and so on. And so they immediately got sidetracked onto an even bigger operation than Crevice. So it, it isn't just that they were stretched, but that the, this, this operation, which later became thought of as the 7-7 operation, was never actually an operation. It was what they were doing in between the cracks of two much bigger operations, Crevice and Rhyme, which almost fell over each other uh, in 2004. And that's the way it's going to be. It's always going to be the way it's going to be. And it's interesting if you if, if you look right. at the ill-fated Operation Pathway that in fact they were willing to arrest people who they thought might be doing something even when they hadn't got the evidence to actually make it stick in the end. But yeah. pre but presumably they thought it was worth it to stop a, a, some kind of seven seven attack yeah, well, occurring. And, and sometimes these early arrest operations, as Pathway certainly was, <laughs> arise because the police and MI five seem to misunderstand each other. They have a different sort of tar a different triggering mechanism. and still have and they have it, exactly. And so the police tend to want to go early than MI5 want to go. Now, you, you, know, you could say there are good reasons for that because they'll get left with egg on their faces if they, if they miscalculate. But in a way, MI5 want to stay around and see what happens. The police say, no, no, this is already too dangerous, we've got to go. And you do have a lot... One of the things the report brought out, I think, quite usefully, is that the collaboration between the security service and the police is not nearly as good as it needs to be, even though it is better than it used to be. It's not as good as That's it has to be. That's a global problem. I mean, go to, go to Washington, 14 different intelligence Absolutely. agencies. Yeah, yeah. Claire? 
Well, I was going to add to this collaboration not only between the uh, intelligence services and police, but also the Muslim communities. And mm. there are obviously more than we talk in terms of a Muslim community. There isn't just one community. There are people whose confidence has to be reinforced as British citizens first and foremost and, and Muslims second. And I think far too many of the the heavier handed, shall we say, of the police operations that have rounded up people, and like those Pakistanis who were arrested and then released, I don't think it raises confidence uh, within the kind of areas from which these people are drawn that they will actually work cooperatively with the police because there have been a number of cases where people have come forward with intelligence and have found themselves arrested. You know, they turn up in the police station to say, I've seen so-and-so doing this, that and the other, and they find themselves under suspicion. So they all keep themselves under the radar. But unless you have some intelligence from within these communities, uh, which is treated in, the, in, the, in a proper way with confidence, um, I don't think we're going to get anywhere. Alexander, um, it, it doesn't matter where you are this whole problem of intelligence gathering, more importantly, I suppose, once you've got intelligence analysis and then the examination of resources, is really a global problem for anybody who's fighting anything, whether it's organised crime, terrorism or whatever. Well, terrorism, I think, is a specific problem because organised crime, for example, is, is easier to fight with because it's not co consisting of loose cannons, you know, like it happened with the 7-7 bombings. And... What, what, what everybody found out is that this uh, setup, when you have those small cells um, scattered all over the place, you can't really monitor them. I mean, it's practically impossible. And the whole concept of terrorism, which, by the way, was explained by Dostoevsky in his novel mm. The Devils, mm. when he said, when he gave um, a statement by one of the terrorists, he said, we will operate in small cells and not one of, in, in, none of those cells will know about each other and nobody will catch us because it was impossible. That is 19th century. He was predicting this is the danger that is coming. And to say now that, the, you know, any intelligence service can pinpoint, I don't know, 500 cells or whatever, it's practically impossible. But let's face it, after the uh, Iraqi war started, it's not a bad track record for MI5, let's face it. You know, we didn't really have that many terrorist acts in Britain. So to, to criticize them now, I think it's... Uh, I think they're doing quite a good job, actually. Okay. Um, we're running late. It's over halfway. Um, talking of cloak and dagger, I suppose, last week's quiz question was, which officers in which service wear no badges of rank? Eric Grove must know this. Answer, it's the naval chaplains. Mm -hmm. The RAF and Army Padres wear badges of rank. Anyway. <laughs> Still to come, does anyone care about the European <laughs> elections or the badges of rank? The importance of joint warrior. And could President Obama get himself a Pope-mobile, or should he get himself a Pope-mobile? With me in the sit-ret table, uh, at the sit-ret table, the director of the Royal United Services Professor uh, Institute, uh, Professor Michael Clark, the head of Middle East Programme at London Think Tank, Chatham House, Dr Claire Spencer, sometime foreign policy advisor to the Kremlin, Alexander Krasov, Professor Eric Grove. Professor, tell us where you're from. The director I never of the Centre for International Security and War Studies at the University of Salford, a greater Manchester university. Great. Yes, and quotes very good prices for used car batteries, probably. <laughs> um, now, Middle East. Uh, remember that two weeks, three weeks ago, King of Jordan, uh, King Abdullah, warned, that the warned the world that... We had about 18 months to conclude a peace deal between Palestine and Israel, otherwise a Middle East war, Claire. Mm. Um, this week, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was in Washington meeting with President Obama. Uh, tell me something, why do the Israelis always get slagged off for not agreeing a peace deal with the Palestinians? I've got no brief for them, by the way, to ask that question. 
Well, they're very difficult to pin down. We all thought um, that the two-state solution, however slow and very unfocused efforts to arrive there were, was a given. You know, this is ever since, uh, in fact, George W. Bush signed up to it and uh, Olmert's government signed up to it. It was seen as a done deal and the Europeans, of course, uh, have signed up to it for donkey's ears. Then suddenly to be told by this new government um, that, well, we're not quite sure, we'll, we'll sort of engage with the Palestinians, whoever they are, because the Palestinians are in complete disarray, but we're leaving all the options open again, takes us right back to the start of the Oslo process, which everyone knows open-ended processes. You know, this is part of the receive wisdom open-ended processes where you have two uneven negotiating partners, an occupied set of Palestinians and the Israelis, who are the largest military force in the region, hardly make for e equal sparring partners. They're supposed to reach some kind of conclusion themselves. And I think one of the reasons the Israelis are getting sick is people are getting tired of the excuses for why they continue settlement activity, which clearly, as a fact on the ground, which is the phrase is commonly used, is changing things to such an extent that actually a two-state solution will no longer be viable. Now, the current government says we're not expanding settlements, we're just uh, increasing the size of them within their existing boundaries. But that's without counting all the roads, which are exclusively for settler use, uh, the activity around East Jerusalem, with the huge wall. Going, the, the wall everywhere, the fact that Palestinians can't move without coming tripping across a, a checkpoint, the economy is completely stalled. I mean, it's easy to say, well, the Palestinians are a disarray and they haven't got themselves organised, but they have been working under extremely difficult circumstances to do so. So I think there's, there's a certain amount of patience running out because there's much larger fish to fry. It's no longer just a bilateral, bilateral problem. It affects everything in the Middle East and beyond. One quick um, question on this, then. Do we believe... Or what grounds had he had? Do we believe the King of Jordan when he says that if we don't get this sorted quick, there's going to be a war in the Middle East? Yes, because I think the, the alternatives, which are the Hamas, the Hezbollahs, the Irans, the what I call the, the, the regional coalition of spoilers, I mean, they don't have a clear strategy which will stick, but they certainly have plenty of potential to spoil what's going on, will carry on exploiting the very widespread discontents, not only over this, but over Iraq and a whole series of issues, which is, you know, whipping up anti-Western, anti-Israeli sentiment, which has increased over recent years. Michael Clark, um, when I listened to um, Prime Minister Netanyahu in Washington, I got the impression he was saying uh, to President Obama, listen, forget this two-state two thing. It is, you know, that's miles down the line. The big problem is Iran. Why can't you get that? That's right. That's, I mean, the Israeli argument is always that, that Iran is the, is the problem, and, of course, that distracts mm -hmm. attention. And, you know, as far as Netanyahu would, would go was to talk about autonomy. He wouldn't go back on this. He wouldn't use the phrase two states. But I think what Netanyahu perceives is that King Abdullah of Jordan is, is playing very, very well at the moment. I mean, uh, Abdullah has cultivated Obama from a very early stage. He backed him as the likely candidate to win quite early on and he is making the running and I think the Israelis realise that they may have a real problem with the Obama administration compared with the easy run they had with the Bush administration and so Netanyahu on the one hand I think you know wants to uh, to go to Washington and appear cooperative but on the other hand he's trying to push the agenda away from where Obama would like it to be and where Abdullah is advising Obama to put the agenda so from from Netanyahu's point of view he wants to as it were establish distance if he has to get pulled back by the, 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 the reality of the Obama administration will let him be pulled back, but he's actually given himself some slack that he, can, that he can then get reeled in on later on, I think. Alexander, 
Um, and yesterday, the Iranians uh, test-fired the uh, Sajil-2 uh, medium-range rocket. Um, that was telling people, wasn't it? Uh, apart from the fact they got an election coming up, that was actually telling people, we are not going to just sort of sit there and let you all talk. We will show you how, how tough we are. Well, definitely they are putting pressure on everybody. But uh, as, as you mentioned, of course, it is a pre-election stuff. Uh, a lot of it is. And, um, you know, I think I'm going back... Um, to the days, uh, to the Soviet days, uh, I, I saw some documents about uh, the Palestinian uh, Liberation Front movement and all of those groups. And they were telling that uh, the leadership of the Palestinians, they, they were not really interested in any peace process. The corruption there, Yasser Arafat presided over a stunning, he was probably a billionaire then. And the Russians were pointing out quietly to the Arabs and saying, look, you really need to sort out the Palestinians because you have to have a force which can talk to the Israelis in a way that can put pressure on them and so on. And I think as, until they do that, until they get the house in order, this two-state solution is just not possible. Kissinger used to have this phrase. He always said the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> well, there you Okay, are. talking about opportunities, uh, very bravely, I want to talk about the European elections. I say bravely because uh, for many they're a huge turn-off, but should they be? How should we convince anyone that the European parliamentary elections are important and that it is in everyone's interest to vote? Or is that load of bunk? Maybe they're rubbish. Maybe the MEPs are simply on a gravy train, like everybody else, I suppose, between Strasbourg and Brussels, and they're the only ones to get a single euro out of it. On the line, the, the Economist's EU correspondent, David Rennie. Do you think that, am I being too cynical, saying that the European Parliament is not in everybody's interest? I think it's too easy to say it's just a gravy train. Uh, I think we've seen painfully that there are other parliaments which uh, have problems with expenses. Uh, I think that the European Parliament is extremely powerful. Um, the problem with the European Parliament is that it's basically a series of extremely powerful committees which have a lot of power to shape legislation and rules and red tape. It's a very unimpressive parliament if your idea of a parliament is a place where people make great speeches and you see a visible clash of ideas and you can see a left and a right and, and sort of ideology. At that, it really falls down. I mean, it does have powers, doesn't it? I mean, can it still hold up the budget, for example, the European budget? It's going to get... It, it has budgetary powers. Um, it's going to get a whole load more powers if, the, uh, if this new Lisbon Treaty comes through. I mean, basically, almost every scrap of EU law will be... Uh, will have to go to national governments and the European Parliament, and the European Parliament will have many, pretty much an equal say to all of the national governments in the EU put together. So they have enormous powers, but the problem is that it is still, it's still hard to tell someone why they should vote, because voting, frankly, doesn't change an awful lot. Uh, the European Parliament is run by uh, three or four big, mushy transnational coalitions, a sort of mushy centre-right, a mushy centre-left, a sort of mushy middle bit, and that isn't really going to change after these elections. You know, just little tiny sort of tweaks here and there will mean someone gets a committee chairmanship and someone else doesn't. But it's, it's not like a, a national election where you're going to see the government change or the opposition become the government. Now these elections are on? They, they run over several days. They run between the 4th and the 7th of June uh, because this is the largest transnational election uh, in the world. It's 27 countries, 370-odd uh, million voters... Um, but the source of great humiliation for the Parliament is that all the signs, including some, uh, some pretty serious opinion polls, show that the turnout uh, is going to be the lowest ever. 
If you had to say in 20 seconds why I should vote, what would you tell me? Well, if you, uh, if you live in the UK, um, you could say that you didn't want uh, to send, uh, you didn't want to send someone like the BMP to uh, Strasbourg. There is a chance the British National Party will get a seat this time. Some people would say that would send a terrible signal. Um, and uh, because if we don't vote, then uh, we will not be able to complain in the future when the European Parliament does things we don't like. David Rennie, thank you very much indeed. Perhaps come back when, uh, when it's all over and tell us what happened. Right, uh, Michael Clark, you will vote? Yes, in the European elections. Yes, yes. yes. I'll, I'll tell you one of the reasons I'll vote, because it will play in directly to the political crisis we have over Parliament at the moment. The, the opposition is calling for an election. The government is saying, no, of course, we're not going to have an election. When we see the results of the European elections, and this has been put to me by a very senior Conservative person last night, very senior, and we'll end up with probably, the Lib Dems will do very well, they may come first, the Conservatives will do reasonably well, they'll perhaps come second, UKIP maybe third, the perhaps the Nationalist Party's fourth, perhaps the BNP might get a seat, they might come fifth or sixth. Where in that would the Labour Party come? If they come second or third, okay, but if they came fifth in the European elections, the argument would be that they have lost all authority. And in that case, it has been said, they actually might not be able to resist the demand for an election. So actually the European elections may play into our political crisis in a rather unexpected and dramatic way. I suspect that's why the political crisis was created in the first place. Actually, that this was publicised in the first place. I follow what Tony Howard was saying in today's Guardian mm. when he must ask questions about why, who benefits mm. and how. You're going to vote? Of course. You mean, of course, for the a lot reason, of people don't. For the, reason, for the reason that, actually, you've just heard. I mean, one yeah. of the main reasons to vote is I'm not, I don't have to get the truck with any of the parties, I suppose, major ones, but I don't want BMP people going to Europe saying they're mm. British MEP. I mean, I love voting. What about you, mm. Claire? Are you going to vote? Well, funny enough, I'm going to be in uh, Lebanon as an electoral monitor. Haven't you got a proxy? Uh, I've applied for a postal vote, but they rather helpfully gave me less than 24 hours' notice to get the, uh, the request in the post. But so you would vote if you were here? I would, yes. Um, for similar reasons, I'm not sure. To be honest, it is too distant. It's far too distant from from local and national elections. But it is to sort of put a line in the sand and say, you know, we care enough about this lot to actually say if we had some proper democracy in Europe. I, I agree it reflects very much domestically. But, I mean, one of the reasons this Lisbon Treaty is not going to get anywhere is it's been imposed, as usual, by the usual arrogant set of uh, drafters without any explanation. There's been very little explanation here. We've been denied a referendum on it. And I think we should actually speak out and say we do want Europe to function better and properly uh, and try and elect people. I'm not sure if anyone's standing on this sort of slate, but try and elect people who do genuinely want to make Europe represent people within Europe. And I'm afraid the Lisbon Treaty, for all its improvements, doesn't do that. As they say in the States, decisions are made by those who turn up. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. But it, and, yeah. It, and it's also relatively um, straight, isn't it? I mean, it's not like vote early, vote often stuff in yeah. you getting in other places, <laughs> yeah. is it? Alexander, I mean, your, um, your website, uh, Stirring Trouble Internationally, internationally mm. uh, I mean, it's very political. What are you telling your people to do? Well, one of our writers was saying that basically this election is going to be a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty, and uh, basically people who are against it will vote UKIP. It's as simple mm. as that. And uh, I think actually that in Britain there will be quite a lot of people 
will be voting. Like the, you could probably do quite well. Yeah, for different yeah. reasons. Of course, I don't think the Labour Party will announce an election, even if they don't come six or seven. But uh, uh, on the whole, I think it's the attitude to the Europe, to, to, to Europe as a whole, and uh, it will be important. You see, um, if if you're living in the UK, then the chances are that you're to some extent insulated from continental Europe. Yeah. If I'm, I don't know, a soldier serving in Germany, or somewhere like that, I'm far more aware of this European thing, Mike. Mm. More likely to sense why I should vote far more than... Well, I, I think in continental Europe, people have got... They may, they may not think that the European Parliament does very much, but I think they have a more instinctive sympathy with the concept of the European Union. Uh, I mean, in Britain, we just have a very, very strange relationship with it, and we always have had for, you know, interesting historical reasons. And I think that, you know, if, if somebody lives in a continental country, for whatever reason, whether they're in the armed forces or working for a, a multinational corporation, I think that they see European politics differently to the way we see it here on this um, offshore island. Right. But, but the disillusion with Europe has happened already with this recession, and I think it's going to change a lot of things now, because people now realise that this... Union, which is supposed to actually help in times of economic crisis, has failed miserably. What's the point of that? Union? I, I, Alexander is exactly right. That one of the things the economic crisis mm. does, it puts the EU right on the spot. If the EU can cope with this, and if it can bring some stability to the Central and Eastern European, the new members, then it will have proved itself. But if it can't, then actually the experiment might as well never have been tried. Right. Now, Mary in the hut is telling me we've got a lot to get through. So, uh, Iraq elections, um, Claire... Um, they're going to take place, general election, the 30th of January next year. Well, that's if the parliament in, in, in Baghdad, as Baghdad says so. Um, largely boycotted by Sunni Arabs last time, wasn't it? Um, easy victory, therefore, for the, for the Shias and the Kurds. Uh, that going to happen again? It's difficult to say. It depends whether this is all speculation, whether whether in fact there's a surge of violence, whether the Sunnis themselves actually feel threatened, whether they feel there's any reason for getting involved and how the fate of Maliki and his coalition shape up in the meantime. Um, it depends on a lot of factors. It, it, it could be this time the enthusiasm we saw in 2005 will not, be, will not be repeated. If people genuinely think these are not national elections, don't forget there's still problems uh, between the Maliki government and uh, the Kurds, particularly over oil revenues. They've just agreed um, that some of the, the gas can go through on the Kurdish side through the Nabucco pipeline, but there's no guarantee. They still haven't worked out a, a sharing out of the dividends from this. And I think we're beginning to see very different philosophies coming forward on, on the future of Iraq, which means the national centre may well be weakened by this and, and enthusiasm for elections. But it's a long time until January. Yeah. OK, listen, just as another reminder about next week's programme, the issue will be how do other seers after Iraq, and was it all worth it, that'll be on BFBS Alternative Service at 1600 UK time, or on the net. You can go to the website and fi find out how to uh, listen to the, uh, get, get the podcast on that. Eric, I just wanted a, a quick word on, in fact, public relations. Um, I was thinking that the Joint Warrior exercise going on at the moment, the old JMC series, what yes. are the big... Uh, so strands in it, series in it, is the training of media or media being a media aware. Why is it the Navy still 
or one gets the impression they still haven't quite got that. No, I, I agree. I mean, for, well, there, there are various issues which I won't go into, which I've had with Navy PR recently, and, it, and it, it's strange. I mean, I mean, why hasn't there been a television programme about the aircraft carrier project? You know, there is one being made about the Type 45, but the Navy seemed to me to be missing several, several tricks well, hang on, we've got a Type 45, we haven't got an aircraft carrier. Uh, well, we soon will. It'd be have very that. difficult visually, I tell you. Well, no, no, no. Not oh, some, oh, not with computerized graphics and what? No, 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 no. Um, <laughs> have a virtual aircraft carrier. You can have it. Well, exactly. Well, we have one already. We have one already. No, I think. I think that. I think it's true that that whether it's the old silent service syndrome, whether it's the fact that the tradition is you operate at some distance from the UK, there have been some successes. I think the Shipmates program was something of a success, and of course, Sailor was a success back in the seventies. But I think the that Rod Stewart. Uh, that was no. That was that was just the signature tune. I liked it despite that awful pop music, actually. Um, and uh, the no, I mean, it, I think there have been some successes, but there does. I think the navy is missing, still missing several tricks. And the other side of this, of course, it applies to all the services. I know that, as traditionally said, um, uh, Mike Clark, that the the army learned its PR skills on the streets of Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, but the truth is, journalists have learned a heck of a lot more. They're, f- they're better educated, they've got more facilities. Um, they're not so reliant, are they, on the handouts from, from, from Mod PR, whatever it's called now? No, exactly. I mean, there's, uh, you know, they do more of their own work. And, you know, the, the army are a much bigger service. I mean, f- just physically bigger, more people. And they're, they're easier to track in a way. I mean, you know, everybody understands what, what ships look like and what ships do. But actually, unless, unless you embed a journalist on a ship, and there are, you know, practical issues about that, it's actually quite difficult to report back from ships. And it's, it's so easy to report back from what the army does. And also visually. Yeah. yeah. You haven't got a ship apparently doing very much exactly ship ships perform a valuable role when they just sail around apparently not doing very much but the army have this they're they're active they look as if they're active and even when they're sitting around doing nothing in their bases they're actually having a lot of fun which is more visual than the fun you can have on a ship yeah and naval actions take place at a distance too the new type 45 destroyer for example can shoot down an incoming missile, if, it was, if, if the destroyer was in the Port of London, it would be engaging the missile over Portsmouth. So getting those kinds of distances onto a screen, unless you use computer graphics and maps... If it's, it's over quite Portsmouth, difficult. then I might not bother, I tell you. <laughs> um, on the same... Sorry, Portsmouth, I didn't really mean that at all. I just think I was in the gas ship. On, on the same subject, uh, I suppose at a very practical area, uh, uh, level, the Americans are realising that they've never quite understood the lessons of big firepower. That's poor PR... Um, against uh, big firepower. It's said, isn't it, Eric, that the the Americans in particular, they can, they can sort of win the physical combat against Taliban, but they lose the communications uh, message against Taliban. Well, well, yes, I mean, there is this awful problem of collateral damage. I know the airmen are getting very worried, and they, and they say, oh, it's only 30% of the collateral damage actually comes from aircraft. It, the rest of it comes from fighting on the ground. But the trouble is, the more collateral damage there is, the less likely it is to make friends and influence people. And the Americans do tend to shoot first and ask questions afterwards in every context. But I was, I was, I was, I was thinking, um, um, Mike Clark, that Richard Holbrook, who is President Obama's special representative, yeah. Um, yeah. I was reading what he said in March. He says, the information issue, sometimes called psychological operations or strategic communication, has become a major, major gap to be filled before U.S.-led forces can regain the upper hand in Afghanistan. That's 
quite an admission considering how long they've been there. Yeah, and, and the, the, he learned that in Bosnia, you know, learned it the hard way. And Holbrook is trying to make a difference. He's a very, very tough guy. He's got Galbraith working with him now, who's, who's sort of sidelined the United Nations. I mean, what, what Obama's doing is putting a very tough team together, which, which sort of breaks plates when it does things. But there's no doubt the Americans are getting much, much better at this, and they're better than we are now. They've, they've, they've as we're reverse-engineered counterinsurgency as we understood it, put it back together again, and they do it better. Um, they put more resource into it, and they understand it better. And Petraeus, who's the CENTCOM commander, I mean, he makes sure that this happens. I mean, you know, David McKinnon, McKinnon's been replaced now, um, I think slightly unfortunately and unfairly, but nevertheless, the, he, you know, Petraeus has a commander there who he believes understands fully the communication message. Absolutely fundamental. Yes, clear. Well, I just wanted to throw in a big hot potato, which is to question your opening premise that the US can, in fact win against the Taliban using the methods used. So it's not a question of PR and spin um, after the Go drones on, affair and everything else. Well, I mean, they, they, it's a much bigger picture. I mean, I was listening to um, David Loyne, who was speaking last night, talking about the production factories, the madrasas at the end of the 80s, I believe he was saying, were about 700 strong. Now they're 7,000 strong. You know, new people are being churned out all the time and they've been given more and more reasons to actually sign up to something which is generic and very long-standing the Taliban can cover a multitude of sins in the Pakistan area and of course as we know it's 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 totally cross border now Afghanistan Afpak Pak Af is the same field if you like so i think improving pr uh, in the short term might uh, demonstrate some things you don't really want demonstrated. Mm. What, I mean, what the Americans are trying to do is to make the Taliban politically irrelevant. That's, that's the, the, the philosopher's stone. They'll always exist, but if they exist at a level that the Kabul government can handle and they are politically irrelevant, then the Americans can say, OK, that's counterinsurgency. But the, they'll always be there, that's for sure. Right. You know, the problem, you know, we had the Russians when the Soviets were in Afghanistan and I was talking to the officers and the soldiers and so on, and they said to me, all of them, that we've been trained as, you know, professional fighters. We've encountered people who do not play by the rules. And the point is, you do not, you can't really train an army to fight against those people. There's nobody there who can tell you what to expect from them. And it depends who writes the rules. <laughs> yes, but unfortunately, all this PR war that the Americans seem to be thinking that they are winning, they're not winning at all. Because in a sense, they're losing the big, the big thing, is the, the war itself. So whatever gloss they are putting on it is one thing. They really, really have to understand they are fighting, uh, not an army, but they are fighting the people who will not play by the rules ever. And Afghans will fight foreigners on principle. Exa exactly. Mm, just like, putting just like the Iraqis, yes, exactly. by the way. Yes, That's exactly. The point. Yes. Right. Listen, um, draw breath, because I want to know the, uh, this week the Russians and the Americans have been holding the first of three days of talks in Moscow on a new treaty aimed at reducing their stockpiles of nuclear weapons. Yes. Well, I wrote an open letter to, to Mr. Obama, which will be published in America tomorrow, I think, and I said to him that this world free of nuclear weapons, for Russians... It is a scenario where they still have the weapons, you see, because the Russians will not give them up. Because if they do, then the Chinese will start looking up and thinking, aha, there's a juicy piece of territory. Well, it's also, <laughs> it's also true the Russians <laughs> won't give up their nuclear weapons because their conventional weapons are sort of absolute rubbish. Listen, I want to go on to something else. Um, Mike Clark, uh, uh, President Obama is on about to travel again, isn't he? He's coming to Europe for the, uh, for the 65th anniversary right, yes, yeah, of D-Day. Yeah. Then he's off in July to, uh, to the Middle East. He's going to Ghana. 
He ought to get a Pope mobile, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's got this sort of he's got this sort of aura that John Paul had. Obviously, people come out yeah. just to look at him. Absolutely, and I'll tell you that, that the governments who are hosting him think twice about this. It's a great honour for the American president to come, but by God, it does not create some problems. I mean, the the army of people and the vehicles and the the tonnage of of stuff that comes the to beast. protect the president. Mm. I saw yeah. the beast when it came yes, to London. Yeah. This huge it is astonishing. All to protect POTUS, president of the United States. Yeah, um, and. It, it is a, it's a it's a mixed blessing, and I've spoken to a few people before his last visit at the American Embassy, and they were absolutely wrecked with the with the detail and the work they had to put in. Did you see the beast? And though? he was only here for twelve hours. This, this huge yes. limo coming down yes. the Palm Mall well, with the windows up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. windows. Yeah. Up. But it's not just. I it's thought it, they were going to be full of Essex girls, but it wasn't. <laughs> that was, that was, that, but it's sorry. fleets of cars, <laughs> fleets of them. Sorry, Essex. Sorry, Essex. <laughs> now, uh, Claire, just 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 a final thought on this. He has got this image there isn't it? It, it well it's charisma i mean you know we're so lacking in charisma around here that anybody else not around charisma. here but um, in <laughs> well i mean globally you you tell me who the charismatic leaders are at the moment i mean he's right uh, quick he we've got 10 seconds Char- charismatic leader oh no 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 uh, president karzai has charisma in the wrong direction yeah <laughs> come on give me one well, that's it Eric? Obama, he's the only one oh, right the only one <laughs> the only one you heard it here my thanks to michael clark claire spencer alexander nekrasov and of course to eric Grove from Sol- and everywhere else. And don't forget, especially if you've served in Iraq, we'll be back here with a whole hour examining one question, how do others see us after Iraq? And was it all worth it? I'm Christopher Lee, Mary's in the hut. Bye now.